we should get this out of the way first. Does your watch band match your shoes today? Uh, it matches my pants. It's blue. I don't know if you can see. Uh, uh, you are a parody of yourself. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Rajan Radio. I'm your host, Pavan Rajan. With me here is special guest, not very special guest, but special guest, uh, Mr. Sam Gross. Hi, Sam. Hi, I'm so insulted I'm about to hang up this Skype call. Oh, well, that was a, <laughs> a short run indeed. Um, oh, that, that seems a shame. Maybe I'll stick around for the rest of the show. Okay. Um, so before we get into the nuts and bolts of the show, uh, of, the, of this episode, uh, let's go ahead and talk about our backgrounds. Um, so for before I moved, let's start with college. I guess let's do chronological order. Uh, or go before that. Grew up in the D.C. area, um, in the D.C. suburbs. And after that, went to Indiana for college. Got a uh, undergraduate degree in finance or finance, as those in the industry call it. Uh, and then after that, decided uh, let's not do anything with that degree, <laughs> and uh, go do some work at um, Comcast on one of their streaming uh, media products, which is kind of where this whole sort of video obsession, video slash TV obsession, kind of got germinated for me. So I spent a couple years working in various like. Started on QA, ended up in like product slash project management for one of their uh, iOS apps. Um, did that for a bit, then moved out here to the Bay Area 2015, um, mainly in pursuit of like, hey, maybe I'll get a job at Apple or something. Uh, you know, being naive and idealistic and not really accountable for anyone but myself. Uh, so it did that. And uh, an opportunity came on my plate in late 2016 to work at one of the uh, agencies that supported uh, marketing efforts for the App Store. So at the time, any of these sort of content you would see on App Store's uh, Twitter or Facebook pages or some of their campaigns, uh, that was all the work of an on-site agency that was working in Cupertino with Apple. Uh, so uh, that came across my plate. Seemed like a cool thing to do. Uh, spent a year doing that. And uh, in November of 2017, kind of took stock of everything and realized I wanted to get back more into the product development side of things. Uh, left the agency, uh, left the sort of on-site Apple world. And uh, yeah, I'm back here doing stuff on the outside again. So, you know, shouting at the cloud and all that stuff. Um, so that's an area that you and I uh, have something in common, Sam, is that we both have had kind of close encounters of the fruit kind, so to speak. Um, I, I'm not proud of that joke, but I, I think that's, that's fair to say, right? I, I think that was actually a clever-ish joke. Um, I'll go with ish. Uh, it's not the most clever joke I've ever heard, but it clearly is not the worst joke. Can't give me too much credit on the first episode. No, 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 no. That's at least episode six, the best Star Wars episode. I'm uh, going to get so much email. I mean, I anyways. Mean, well, I mean, quick tangent. I Return of the Jedi is really good. I think it gets a bad rap because of the Ewoks and stuff. Like there are a couple moments in that movie that like really, really good. That could be a whole other episode. But anyways, continue. 
yeah, we should we should come back and talk about Star Wars uh, maybe later today. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so what what did I do? I also grew up in the D.C. suburbs, although I did not yet know Pavan. I then went to college and got a degree in geographic information science, which I did not use. Spent a little bit of time during and immediately following college working at Apple, both in the retail stores, which was a ton of fun and taught me a lot about how to actually talk to other human beings. And then I spent a little bit of time in Cupertino working on a couple of different internal and external programs, most notably the Apple Store app, which was a super cool group of people to work with. Note that that's not the App Store. It's a totally different thing. And then after that, I moved to New York to work at a variety of different startups, most recently Oscar Health, which is a health insurance startup and insurance company. It's a little bit weird, but it's kind of fun, and we're trying to make the world a better place and often failing. So that's, that's my story. But how I actually met Pavan is another interesting and quite hilarious backstory. Do you want to start with that? Yeah. Um... So pretty much what happened was uh, we, uh, as I mentioned before, there's a podcast called the Accidental Tech Podcast, for those of you who don't listen to that. Uh, and they do a weekly live stream where they record the show every, I want to say Wednesday, right? Presumably. Yeah, Wednesdays. So uh, they do that usually, and they have a little chat room that goes on there. And so in 2013, when I was working at Comcast and I was living by myself in Philadelphia, my Wednesday thing would be to run to like the hole in the wall Thai restaurant, grab like $30 worth of food, uh, run back to my apartment, post up at my dining table and jump, airplay the live stream to my Apple TV speakers and then just camp out in the chat room. Like I had a pretty cool social life uh, going on in Philly then. Um... And then this dude with the handle Sam the Geek is always there. And I'm just like, who the fuck is this dude? Like, he's all pally pally with everyone. And he's like, a, everyone seems to like him. Like, what the hell, man? Uh, and uh, then I think the next, like, sort of close encounter was, like, you were mentioning something about, I think it was, like, the iPhone 6 or 6S launch. And you were saying something about, the something about the Bethesda Row store. Um, and uh, I was just like, oh, he's local. Cool, I guess. Um, but I don't think we actually met in person until uh, WWDC 2015. That sounds about right. I think that's the first time we actually saw each other in person, despite the fact that at various times we were within maybe a mile of one another and never actually met up. That happened a lot. Like, oh, he's right there. I'm right here. Who? <laughs> yes. We're we're quite bad at, at social interaction, which is why we met in the chat room for another podcast and are now spending our Wednesday nights podcasting with each other. Yes. Uh we 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 got this uh Yeah, that's no further comments there. Now that we have introductions out of the way, let's move to our main segment for this episode about my blog post, Apple and the Video Market.
article, I guess, for the Rajan Report. This won't always be the case. There won't always necessarily be a post that corresponds to this middle part of the show. Um, but, uh, you know, this week there is one. So, cool. You wrote a thing. Let's talk about the thing you wrote. I, I wrote a thing. Uh, it's a post called Apple and the Video Market. Um, and, and essentially, it you know, we've heard a lot of stuff about, hey, Apple is, uh, you know, uh, getting these shows or ordering these shows. They spun up an original content division reporting to Eddie. Um, Eddie Q, who is the SVP of Internet. You, you know who this guy is if you're listening to this show. I'm not going to explain it. Um, the one with the loud shirts. Uh, sure, sure, loud shirts, because sometimes uh, you can hear colors. Um, but but yeah, so they they've spun up an original content division. Uh, they've also uh, you know, they brought these two guys, Zach and Jamie, into uh to kind of run that whole part of the company. Uh, reporting to Eddie, and that's interesting because up until now. Right. I mean, it seems that the sort of video slash TV strategy has been like, we'll be like a platform or a neutral sort of party on the content side. You know, we're, we're happy to merchandise and like, you know, promote and do all the stuff that they've done with Apple Music and books and and, you know, the iTunes TV store and movie store before that. But Apple has never actually been like, hey, we're going to get our own stuff, our own first-party content in the way that, say, like, a Nintendo makes Mario games for the Switch, right? Like, that's not a that's not a thing that they've ever done before, and frankly, that's not really a thing that's happened in video before. Um, so everyone kind of gets that. I think that's a point that's been kind of well understood. Um, but contextualizing that with the sort of broader strategy around products and services and where all that stuff is yet or is right now, I don't think has really been done yet. And that was kind of the, the driving reason or this piece's reason for being there. Basically it's like, um, why don't we connect all the dots here? I'm just really excited. I'm going to get a chance to say that I like the TV app, even though everyone else hates it. You know, the, the whole, the TV app sucks meme is, I think that is very out of date at this point. Like if you, picked it up in December 2016 and we're like, this doesn't have Netflix. I'm never going to use it. Uh, you should really go back and take another look at it. It's come a long way since then. Uh, and, and to be fair, uh, Netflix actually does work within the context of the catalog features on, on the TV app. You can search for Netflix content. You can launch it in there. You just can't, uh, you know, it doesn't show up in the up next queue. Um, which is fine because the real, like, Netflix's UI, not perfect, but it's not also a dumpster fire, right? Uh, basically, every other <laughs> every other app that's made by some media company, whether it is, uh, you know, Hulu or HBO or Showtime or whatever, is pretty bad, right? It, they're either bad from design perspective, they're bad from, like, implementation perspective, uh, and when all those things like kind of hit you at the same time, it's just like the future of TV is apps. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's not great. And, uh, you know, we could, we could go on a laundry list of like what each app does that annoys you. Right. I mean, 
like Hulu, like the Hulu interface now looks like they they took the brief, threw it out the window, and then went to their marketing design team and were like, "Hey, can you make our app now? Thanks." Um, My favorite uh, individual problem in apps is the th- exact thing that the TV app and what what no one remembers you can do, but Siri search on the Apple TV solves. And that's search. Netflix, it's buried three rows up from where you end up in the app when you launch the app. You actually have to scroll up off the screen to an invisible search button. And HBO puts it last on their menu, which for some reason runs down the left side of the screen in 10-point font. So the primary purpose of these apps clears is clearly to drive you to content that the content provider already wants you to see and not allow you to discover content or find content that you already want to see that you know about before launching the app. And that's where things like the TV app, the search app, and Siri come in on the Apple TV and actually work quite well. That functionality actually lets you search by a ton of rich information, whether it be director or actor slash cinematographer, whatever quality you want to search for, as well as just searching by title. It's, I'd say, about 90% perfect. Within a couple of characters, it usually has the right thing that you're looking for pulled up on screen, which is way better than any other app can do. And because it indexes across every app you have on the device, and even apps that you don't have downloaded but Apple knows about, you can find where to watch the thing that you already want to watch if you're able to watch it, which is awesome. That being said, it doesn't know about things that exist in a catalog that Apple doesn't have access to, which isn't much, but if you're looking for some esoteric movie, which I sometimes am, and I'm sure you are, that then it falls down completely and gives you a, a result that is totally useless. Not that anyone else does any better in this regard. All the TV boxes are terrible. All of the apps on all the TV boxes are terrible. But why don't we talk a little bit about why that actually is important? Why are these apps and these boxes relevant now when they weren't five or six years ago when we all bought them for the first time? Yeah. Um, before we get to that, I, I think one 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 thing I I always like to point out um, is the sort of, and I guess this is somewhat carrying water for, for Apple a little bit, but the the genius of, of TV ML kit as opposed to UI kit for TV apps and that whole sort of templated XML sort of based system uh, for building Apple TV apps. It was the original Apple TV SDK uh, because they realized who their target developer was. It was these media companies who don't really necessarily have deep benches of native, you know, app developers, right? They probably have a couple, you know, web developers here and there and, and, uh, you know, someone who manages the back end. Uh, like that sort of taking into consideration, like your target developers strengths and weaknesses and building a solution for them. And then that yielding a better overall customer experience, uh, I think is something that hasn't really been articulated or, or, or said. So good job, that team at Apple. <laughs> um, but to your, to your point about um, 
why do these boxes matter? Well, you know, and I think what Apple TV four came out in 2015, but prior to that, the sort of streaming box thing uh, shipped in 2010 with that Apple TV two that Steve Jobs uh, introduced with the uh, with uh, with the Retina iPod Touch. I think um, not that that matters. Uh, essentially, if you look at the broader trend in the TV market right now. People are basically the notion of cord cutting, right? Where it's like people canceling cable and just subscribing just to internet from these cable and you know uh, telco companies. Uh, that's a real thing. Effectively, as I stated in the piece, pay TV is in is in decline. Uh, I'm not going to kind of belabor the point with numbers and statistics, but that sort of traditional, I'm going to pay Comcast, uh, you know, a hundred bucks a month. That includes, you know, all the channels, a bunch of set-top boxes and taxes and fees and all this stuff. Like, that whole model is on the decline. It stopped growing sometime in 2009. Uh, it's not coming back. Um, and at the same time that's happening, you have services like Netflix and Hulu and HBO Now and these sort of streaming uh, subscription services where people are... Uh, are, are migrating to because all the content's on demand. You get it on every device. It's a low cost to cancel or change or all that stuff. Um, it's, it's a pretty big change in how, uh, you know, you can experience content compared to before. And once you go that route, uh, it's hard not to look at the other stuff, like the old pay TV system and be like, that's ridiculous. Right. I mean, if you, Let's say you got an iPod, right? And then someone told you, oh, yeah, if you want to hear this new album, you have to uh, make an appointment to, like, sit near a speaker and listen to the whole album. You can't pause it. Uh, and if you want to hear the whole thing before they actually release it tomorrow so you can on the whatever download service it is, you have to, like, record it with a tape. Uh, no one would do that. <laughs> And that's why pay TV is dying, I guess. But we're replacing it, or some people are trying to replace it with exactly the same thing, which I, of course, pay for because I'm an idiot. But it works sometimes, replacing it with a streaming service. Linear TV isn't totally dead, but of course I pay for it so I can watch sports because sports ball is a thing that I enjoy sometimes. Right. And I mean, and in, in that regard, I mean, like I've said a couple of times, I think in a piece and I'm kind of art, I'm, let's just say it now, uh, linear TV is, doesn't make sense in an on-demand world. There are exceptions to that, right? The exceptions to that are sports and like 24 seven news. And there are some things that just by their nature are live. Uh, the reason sports has been such a hard nut to crack has been the way those rights have been negotiated with the networks, right? You have, uh, you know, it, there's all sorts of, you know, geographic, uh, you know, fragmentation on that front too with who can broadcast stuff. You have all this, like, uh, weird legalese around blackouts and, you know, they're, they're, like, it, the whole sports thing is a pretty big mess in terms of rights, and that's part of why it's taking so long for that to, uh, you know, push people over. Arguably, sports is the thing that's, like, held the whole pay TV ecosystem together for so long, and even that is showing signs of kind of falling apart. Right. I think Disney's probably quite worried about ESPN's performance over the last few years. 
it looks like their ability to insist that every single person in the United States pay for their channel in one way or another is going away slowly at first, but then quickly. It's uh, an old saying, I guess. Yeah, it's... uh... I mean, w- when you look at ESPN, right? I mean, what are the what content are you actually watching on ESPN, right? There's like Sports Center, there is, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Wimbledon and some of the tennis stuff, but that's not like Super Bowl scale stuff, right? The NFL has always kind of been a broadcast network affair, with the exception of uh, Monday Night Football on ESPN. Uh, like ESPN's always been more of like a news thing, not, not at least to me. And like I could be wrong here, because like I don't know how many times I've been gone to like a bar or something, and like ESPN's on, and it's like bowling or like some other, you know, it's like ESPN eight, the Ocho is on, and it's like you know curling, and it's like in the middle of summer of in a Scandinavian country, you know, it's like who is watching this? And I get that you have to fill dead air, but like, is this really worth like 10 bucks a month per subscriber for all these cable companies? I got your reference just, just to make that perfectly clear. If you didn't get that reference, you can email Pavan or contact him on Twitter, but it really never made sense to pay $10 a month for these people. And that's why Disney has spent so much money on, exclusives like Monday Night Football, which for many years was considered appointment TV for millions of American households. And once they bought it, they moved the games, which had previously been broadcast free to air on ABC, over to ESPN. So only those who paid for ESPN could get it. Even more interestingly, they never have and presumably will soon, but I don't think they've fully announced when it's going to happen, allowed you to subscribe to ESPN without buying a cable package. So there's this weird symbiotic relationship between Disney, who broadcasts some sports, a limited amount given, and the cable companies who know that so long as ESPN is only available through the cable companies, people will pay for an entire cable subscription just to have access to this one channel, which itself allows Disney to demand an absurdly high dollar amount per subscriber for this channel. And frankly, if I got cable in this apartment, ESPN would be more than a third of the cable bill each month. Yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah, because they also, on top of that, they do this ridiculous sort of uh, bundling thing, right? It's like, you can only get ESPN if you carry, like, ESPN's 2 through 15, uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you don't, good luck. And, and carrying ESPNs two through 15, uh, also means that you have to, uh, you know, pay for those as well. It's a, you know, that's not a, uh, it's not a great deal for, for the providers or for the cable companies either. Um, but, but in, in a broader sense though, right. You know, everyone was like, sports is going to be the reason this thing holds together and people don't turn off pay TV and all that stuff. Um, Look at the media environment we're in now, right? I mean, not only is every, you know, TV is increasingly on demand, right, with uh, all the Netflixes and Hulus of the world, but music's on demand, uh, books are, you have gaming now, you have all this crazy content on YouTube that is always there, uh, 
You have esports. You have podcasts. I might have already said podcasts, but I'm going to say podcasts again because podcasts. Um, you you have there's so much more content and so many other ways that as a media consumer you can spend your time, and a lot of those are frankly better deal you know better values right like a sixty dollar video game that gives you fifty to one hundred hours of of uh you know entertainment is one of the best deals out there, um and and it's you know. It's that that's the environment that pay TV is operating in there. And it's it's really hard to see uh, see how it, it goes back to the old way. I mean, you look at look at the next generation. Right. Um, and how they are <laughs> next generation, not us, uh, but people younger than us and how much they use YouTube and, and how influential YouTube has become for building, uh, you know, businesses and celebrity and. And all of these things, uh, it's you know, I it's I struggle to look at that and be like, yeah, like the you know, pay TV a lot of the '90s is coming back. Like I think that ship has, has sailed and continues to sail away. Uh, in in if I just look at the industry from an intuitive perspective. Just to make the point, I think when you said the next generation, you actually meant Discovery. Star Trek Discovery is the new media online only TV show in that universe. The next generation was broadcast in the mid nineties. There's, there's something to be said there, I guess. <laughs> yes. I, I think that frankly, the whole ecosystem, even the nonlinear paid services are fooling themselves. If they think that there's going to be room for everyone And it seems like every single content company is trying to create their own service so they can control distribution and production and therefore take a larger piece of the pie without having to give profits to anyone else. Notably in this category is Disney, who are ending their deal with Netflix and going it their own way to the point where they've even acquired other companies that will purportedly help them make a go at being another Netflix. But honestly, I think that when people have cut the cord, they're not going to be willing to go back to paying the same $60 per month, just six ways. They'll want to pay for one service and everyone who doesn't have, everyone who doesn't have the best content will end up on a second tier where they have some smaller specialized sliver of the market. HBO at one point had that as comedy, and then they had it as high-quality TV production. Of course, Netflix has taken both of those markets away from them, or at least a large portion of those markets. And I think that, frankly, if anyone else is deluding themselves that they can build their own streaming service, CBS, ahem, then they're not going to be long for this world as an independent company. I mean, here's the thing, right? You look at um, if you if you what makes a good streaming service, right? One is just quality of service, right? Like anytime I launch the damn app, the app the the client application needs to launch, and I need to be able to watch content, right? There's that. Uh, two, it needs to be uh curated, right? There needs to be some thought put into what content's being displayed. How how are you promoting things within that platform? Uh. 
you know, it can't be the same, like, you, you can't just open up an app and then just see a list A to Z of titles. There's literally a view in HBO now where you can just view a list of titles A to Z. I have no idea how to do that in Netflix, and I'm pretty sure it's because it doesn't exist. Um, it doesn't. And, and to I've th- tried. <laughs> and to that point, though, right, like, it's the third thing is that uh, these things need to be personalized, right? Like, they... HBO is still in this sort of broadcast mentality where when I open up the app, I see the same thing that you see, the same thing that, uh, you know, my grandmother sees, uh, the same thing that, uh, you know, my niece sees or whatever, right? It's everyone sees the same thing. Uh, Netflix is complete. I like, I don't know what, what the hell's going on in their app when I look at it on someone else's device. Like it is, it is insane how personalized and dialed in that is. Um, and you know, another good example outside of the streaming, uh, media world is, is, you know, Spotify and uh, Apple music, I would say are also leaders in that personalization front. And the thing about personalization is that you're less likely to turn away as a customer and, uh, you know, it, that drives engagement and usage, right? It's the thing that keeps you coming back. I guess to know you and all that, all that cool stuff. Um, with the exception of Netflix and to a lesser degree, Amazon and YouTube, uh, every other streaming product completely. And I'm just going to be explicit about it. Like shits the bed on that front. Like they just don't seem to, you know, I think they they're they I'm sure they're smart and they're re, like they're you know they're product folks and whoever they know that this is a gap for them but like if you're a data scientist or you know someone who writes like the sort of machine learning algorithms that power power really strong and good recommendations engines are you going to go work for a media company are you going to go work for HBO are you going to go work for Showtime or CBS I think the answer there is pretty obviously no <laughs> um you know, you're going to go work for Netflix. I mean, there's like a, it's funny in this regard, there's like a sort of supply side constraint for media companies because they're media companies, right? Like they're never going to be able to get like a player talent to build their services. And that's part of why I like Disney was just like, yo, we need to buy BAM tech or at least like have a majority share of it because this is our, this is the easiest way we can get that talent in house to help us get this thing off the ground. Um, and and going back, you know, going back to the quality of service thing, uh, so many of these apps even fail in that regard, right? Like, how many times have you opened up a streaming app and it's just like, like it it loses the token or whatever, and you have to re-auth with it, or, uh, you know, it you get in, but then like it can't get to the stream, or like it's the way it's architected, like gets you into a situation like you had on Sunday where the Super Bowl ran over its allotted time. And uh, Hulu didn't account for that in their UI or anything. So you try watching it into the featured thing and it says like, there's nothing to watch here. Like after 7.20 PM, like that, all those things are just like, shouldn't happen. Right. Right. And now given there are other groups who have a vested interest in making this experience suck. A lot of the reason why signing into apps on other platforms or signing into any TV apps on any platform is so terrible is because the cable companies want it to remain terrible. So you still have to pay for a box from them in order to watch the content that exists within those apps. Right. Well, and and then there's also economic. uh, So I I have some inside baseball on that, I guess. Um, 
You know, I, we mentioned that Stars app earlier, right? That is very convenient and consolidates, uh, uh, you know, cable authentication and like people who are subscribing via the App Store authentication, right? Um, there was actually when they launched, uh, you know, Comcast was like, uh, you know, sorry, uh, but this is not something we're interested in supporting. Uh, and so they were able to specifically prevent that client from accessing like auth services through the TV everywhere infrastructure. They could basically be like, no, we don't want to support this. Uh, if you want to watch content with your subscription, uh, use, you know, the first party Comcast app, which is kind of their sort of leverage on content providers to prevent them from, uh, you know, flying the coupon or going rogue on that front, right? They can just be like, all right, we'll stop supporting your app. We still have your content. Uh, and, uh, you know, our customers can still access it. Um, but there's also been a sort of cold war on that front too. For example, uh, when Apple TV four launched and the app store launched and you had all these, you know, TV OS apps launching for each content provider on the app store. Uh, there were a couple from, I think scripts in particular. So that's the uh, scripts owns, uh, food network, HGTV, uh, DIY. So they shipped some reasonably good tvOS apps on Apple TV and when you tried to log in with your cable subscription almost all of the cable providers were there except for Comcast and it's not that Comcast had blacklisted all of the all of uh scripts uh you know you know third or TV everywhere apps um but they had explicitly omitted support for uh for tvOS like the iOS client was able to work fine and again, it's because like supporting a Apple TV box or Roku or whatever at the time, they viewed it as an existential threat, right? Like it's it's the set top, but you know, it, you're using that box instead of their box to access the content you're paying for. So then you're going to be like, what am I paying for this box for? Uh, and that's the, the that's the sort of the the unspoken thing about the the pay TV industry is that. Uh, Simply aggregating and redistributing someone else's content, right? That's not a great business. That's not a very high margin business, right? Uh, you look at, uh, you know, um, take for example uh, Netflix, right, and how much money they are they are uh, raising in via the debt markets to fund original content and, and how like no one's buying Netflix stock because it's like, this is a really high margin business guys. Like they're buying it because it's a growing subscriber base, the recurring revenue, not because of high margins. Um, the cable industry has been able to get around this by, you know, for every box in, in a subscriber household, uh, you know, charging a recurring rental fee for it, right? You can't go buy a Comcast X1 box. You have to rent it in perpetuity till you either move out of the area, decide you don't want to use uh, use that box for TV, or you die. Like, it's those are the three options for stopping and not being one of their customers for a long time. Uh, there is no alternative. And, and when... You look at that and you realize that that's where, you know, that's what actually keeps the lights on, right? There, you know, the, the revenue from from the traditional, uh, you know, pay TV subscription is, is you know, good for, you know, you're barely breaking even there, right? Or, or making a little bit of profit and all the, the real cream of the crop is, or gravy, so to speak, is, is from the set-top boxes. Then, yeah, you're not going to support an Apple TV 
uh, with TV everywhere. Um, and and it's and that's the same reason why you know none of the major uh, TV providers support uh, single sign-on, right? I mean, like single sign-on is like I remember when Apple TV four shipped, everyone was like, "Why is this not a thing? This should be a thing." Well, it's like you have to wrangle cats that have their fangs out and are actively being like, "No, we are not doing this because this is like not good for us as or in our interest." Um, they they launched it, and I think it's now been over two years since they launched the feature of single sign-on with zero of the major cable providers still on it. I think, like, DirecTV might be... DirecTV and Dish might be playing ball, but, like, again, that's not... Uh, you know, Comcast isn't, Verizon isn't, uh, Charter and all these guys. Like, no, no one's playing ball on that front. Yeah. Notably, also, Dish, uh, who is the over-the-top, meaning the streaming TV service that I subscribe to, does not support single sign-on for customers of the streaming service. They only support it if you have a dish bolted to the side of your house. I live in an apartment where I cannot bolt a dish to the outside of the building. I would get in big trouble and lose my apartment. I quite like my apartment. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because that was also the loophole by which you could get NFL Sunday ticket for a long time was you could get it like through an app without getting a direct TV subscription. If you lived in a building, an apartment building that, uh, would not let you get a satellite, uh, on, on the window, like fun life hack for like five to 10 years ago. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, five to 10 years ago, I was living in. My parents' house. Uh, possibly same. <laughs> Millennials, am I right? I'm literally shrugging right now because I am a millennial and I wanted to shrug. And now, a quick word from our sponsor via a very special guest. Hi, I'm Supreme Leader Kylo Ren, here to tell you about a service I love to use called Galaxy Chef. Galaxy Chef makes cooking accessible and simple. They provide you with high quality ingredients at exactly the right proportions to make the best meals in the galaxy in less than the time it takes to charge a sun-powered super weapon. Galaxy Chef sources sustainable, organic ingredients for a variety of first-order controlled systems to build a varied menu that never disappoints. This month's featured ingredient is pork. You'll get entrees like pork chops, Pork pot pie and roasted spatchcock pork seasoned with crate salt. Sides include risotto harvested from the fields of Naboo, kashyyyk tropical rice, and root leaf stew from the Dagobah system. You'll even get tasty desserts like jug and fruit cake from the Lothal system and thylacyrin milkshakes from Octo. Best of all, these are all fair trade ingredients, so you can rest assured that they are being harvested and picked by a droid. Use promo code Knights of Ren at checkout to save 15% on your first order. My thanks to Galaxy Chef for being this episode's sponsor. I think I briefly mentioned how getting it over a dish probably would also suck if I could actually do it. So what else is there to talk about in that regard? I mean, it's 
it's a bag of hurt to use a wise man's phrase. Oh god, that's that's terrible. Um no, but I, 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 yeah, so we can all agree that, like, you know, the current state of the market is you go buy, like, a cheap streaming box, like a Roku or something, you install Netflix and Hulu and, and Amazon and maybe HBO, and, and that's about it. And then you maybe you subscribe to one of these over-the-top packages, right? Um, but, like, on the hardware side, that market's super commodified, right? It's, like, these sort of $30 things that... uh all have the same content. Um, and then on this, on the streaming service side, like you have all these different, like differentiated content offerings to make you pick one service or the other, right? Like, you know, Netflix's original, uh, content is so you subscribe to Netflix, right? Uh, Amazon is the same way. HBO has always been that way. Uh, you know, it's, uh, content differentiates services. Um, so the, and then where does Apple play into all this, right? Because clearly, uh, you know, the fact that they're now getting into this sort of original content space, uh, Apple TV has kind of been walked back to being a uh, video-first device. Um, it's, uh, where, where, where are they? And basically, uh, to really sum it up, right, the Apple TV hasn't really, you know, taken the lead in market share the way something like, even an accessory project product like watch has, right? I mean, like watch is premium priced in its market. Uh, it, it has some really great differentiated features compared to like fitness trackers, like the Fitbit, uh, which traditionally I've seen lower ASPs, uh, but it's eating, it's cleaning up in that market, right? So this, this isn't impossible, right? Where, where Apple is cleaning up in a market that is filled with uh, commoditized competitors. Um, so why is that? And really at the end of the day, it's because Apple's differentiation in markets like, you know, phones and tablets and PCs and watches and all, all that stuff has, it's traditionally been derived from best in class integration of hardware, software services with like a focus on customer experience, right? I think that's, that's a fair kind of way to say it, right? Yeah, and we just spent 20 minutes describing the ways that the software and customer experience sucks on Apple TV. Not for reasons that Apple can particularly control, mind you, but nonetheless, it is not a great experience for customers. And so there's no reason for anyone to buy an Apple TV to get this mediocre app experience over the mediocre app experience on a competing box, whether that's Roku or Amazon or even the weird whatever Google's doing today. Well, I'd even challenge you on that point to say, like, Apple does have a solution for this in the TV app, right, to bring it fully home. Uh, You know, the TV app, with the exception of Netflix, abstracts a lot of those things we were complaining about, right? It abstracts the the shitty UIs and, and... all of that nonsense and consolidates that into one one single place where you get everything. Um, the issue is, even if that's super awesomely designed, even if like the iTunes Store is a really nicely designed application where you can get content, you know, that's another thing we didn't mention. Like you could still just go buy shows on iTunes, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're just you're just like 
fuck this whole like pay TV nonsense and TV everywhere apps and streaming services and all this crap. Uh, I will pay a premium to just have a simple UI and get these shows the next day, never see an ad, you know, all that stuff. Um, but again, like that's too expensive and it's, uh, you know, it, it doesn't work. Um, you know, it's, it might be better from a pure user experience perspective, but that's not going to stop someone from getting a better value out of Netflix or something. Right. So you, you have, you have, you know, basically the nut of it is this market video as a market is differentiated by content. Like it doesn't matter how amazing and breakthrough your hardware and software and your design and your UI and all that stuff is if there's no content there. I mean, how much time do you actually spend in menus when you're trying to watch TV anyways, right? Like most of the time you're on TV, you're watching a video, there's no UI on the screen. Exactly. And uh, how has all of their work on fancy hardware and software and UI done for Apple TV's prospects in the market and its financial performance? Well, I would tell you, Sam, except uh, in the most recent earnings release and the conference call, it was nowhere to be found. Not even like a market research anecdote saying, oh, yeah, this is the highest customer set or, uh, you know, Kantar World Panel says that Apple TV is the highest growing, uh, you know, streaming TV box on the market. You know, nothing, complete radio silence. So, uh you know, and if you read the piece, I know we ended up kind of uh, alluding to a lot of that stuff. That the the piece on RajamReport.com, plug in the blog, uh, RajamReport.com has the actual data kind of laid out in a more cohesive fashion, um, and, and makes the case a little bit better than I am currently making it right now. Um, yeah. Yeah. The the it doesn't look great for the Apple TV though, does it? No, it it really doesn't. Um, it it's it it is a laggard in the, in the marketplace. Um, you know, it is fourth in market share as of like July of last year. Uh, and that's a situation where it's like, okay, like maybe we cut the price and go for market share, right? There's that sort of famous Steve Jobs quote where he's like, you know, old Apple didn't know when to you know take a hit on margin a little bit and go for market share. Um, you know, that seems like a pretty straightforward opportunity for that. Instead, in September, they release Apple TV 4K. They go further up market in price. And now you have this giant sort of gap between, uh, you know, uh, the Apple TV product line and literally everything else in the market. I mean, when you plot it out on a chart, it's pretty crazy looking. Yeah, it seems like uh, that's not really going to get them any market share. And the premium price, which usually makes up for not having market share with revenue, also doesn't really seem to be working for them. Because if it was, they'd probably tell us about it. Even in abstracted uh, Bezos charts of, look, it's doing super well, but it probably isn't. Yeah. Um, so so if, you were to, if I were to sum up the sort of like the three video products Apple has, right? iTunes Store... Uh, TV app and then Apple TV. Uh, you know, iTunes Store is fine, but like that segment of the market is on the decline, right? Like no one's buying TV shows. Um, I don't 
don't think many people were ever buying TV shows from iTunes, even from the very beginning. Oh, uh, yeah, agreed, agreed. I mean, again, that's the thing with unbundling, right? It your your cost per uh, you know hour of content or whatever goes up. Um, so iTunes Store is not really a viable future, right? Um, the TV app's great, but it's I do, I think it's safe to say now that it's been on the market for you know over a year. Uh, it's not so great that it justifies spending at least $150 to get it on your TV, right? Um, and then three, like Apple TV is great, but I mean, if you look at how it's positioned now as a video first device, I can get four TV, uh, you know, 4K TV, sorry, not four TV, uh, 4K uh, content uh, from Fire TV or Chrome or, or whatever for a much lower price. Um, and so you have these things where these three offerings are in a spot where, yeah, they're objectively good, but in this market, it literally doesn't matter. Um, so, and that's where content comes in, right? That's why they've kind of woken up to the fact that, uh, content is going to be what differentiates, you know, the product line going forward or portfolio going forward. But even then, like, there's a lot of open questions there, right? Like, is this stuff going to be good, right? I mean, it's not, uh, you know, a lot of people are pointing to Carpool Karaoke and Planet of the Apps as, you know, this doesn't portend uh, well for the future content at Apple. And, I mean, whatever. Those are some weird experiments that they threw on Apple Music. Uh, I don't really consider those to be something that... uh, that I'd be concerned about, but the, the overall notion of will the shows be good? That's still kind of up in the air. Um, they've hired these guys, uh, you know, Zach and Jamie are good. They, you know, they did breaking bad and developed a couple other shows that are, that were big. Um, but as a institution, as a company, uh, Apple has traditionally stayed away from content creation. Right. And I think, uh, Steve historically, Steve Jobs would historically, you know, ha- has always articulated that point very well in various All Things D conferences where he's like, well, if I were a content guy, why would I want to go work for a technical guy, you know, company? And if I were a technical guy, why would I want to go work for a content company? Like, they just don't seem to understand each other. And, you know, uh, uh, tech meme is littered with press releases of you know failed uh, you know cross pollination attempts between tech and entertainment. Um, I, th- I think what Netflix and Amazon have kind of proved is that hey, let's just give people a, like a check, you know, give talented people a check with a, or talented people with a track record a check, and trust in their taste, and uh, you know they'll come up with something good. That seems to be the model going forward, uh, and. You know that that means that success is possible for Apple on the content quality front, um, but okay, sure. Let's say the content is good. Is it worth? Are you? Would you go buy a like a one hundred fifty dollar Apple TV box to watch one new awesome show on your TV? I I should put this pretty simply, and it's actually an easy example. I have two Apple TVs in my small apartment. I paid not full price for one of them, and the other one was free. So that tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> so no. Yes, that, that correct. The answer was no. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, yeah, to me, that speaks volumes, right? The, the jury's out whether, 
whether that that's even going to be the thing that does it right and so it, you know what other example of using content to differentiate a product exists right and uh the only obvious example that i can think of uh is the video game market right or you know you have uh microsoft sony uh nintendo have their consoles uh they're all effectively the same particularly ps4 and xbox one right they're they're the reason you pick one or the other is either like from the network effect of your friends online or because of a particular game in this case you know game is the content here or unit of content here that you can only get on one that you can't get on the other um so no one's done that in video and certainly not at the at the scale that Apple would be tried doing it with uh this current product portfolio, right? And I, I think this is an area where if you look at who they've hired, right, particularly on the hardware product uh, product marketing side with Tim Tordahl, I believe is his last name, who used to be at uh Amazon running Fire TV there. Uh I'm curious to see how he kind of leads that product line in terms of pricing and positioning going forward, right? Whether he brings it more down market, he makes it more accessible and it's more competitive on price uh, than the, uh, you know, uh, the current offerings. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'll admit, you know, way more about this little segment of the market than I do, but if uh, if the Apple TV actually does take off, then maybe it'll show up in some earnings report in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah that that would that would be you know maybe it won't just be in another product. Um, you know, and speaking speaking of earnings reports and and segments, I'm almost done ranting about this. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, there there's there's a fundamental choice here right it's like what is more important right is building a, a another revenue stream that's high margin differentiated hardware like another you know let's say apple watch is a good benchmark because uh um the phone is just a one once in a lifetime thing i think it's safe to say right yeah no um Companies are lucky if they have one product that becomes as dominant in the marketplace by itself as the iPhone is. And there is no company that has ever repeated that success, and I don't expect Apple to. Even if they have the perfect team, there's no way that any company can do that twice, much less three times. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and, and so so we, we so that's one option, right? Like, is this Apple TV another watch type multi billion dollar high margin differentiated product business, or is it is it uh, is services the priority right? Is growing services revenue and pushing that harder the priority because those are two different sets of incentives right? Uh, and and that begs the question: All right, you have a, a original content. Are you going to keep it on Apple platforms or are you going to put it on everything right? Are you going to launch a cross platform streaming service the way? music is on android and windows via itunes um because because if you're not and your goal is services revenue then you're leaving a lot of money on the table right like imagine like netflix and amazon are tapping into this huge amount of growth by not 
you know, limiting themselves to any particular platform. And, and like, Amazon's very aggressive about that. I mean, like, there's not much in the way of incentives for them to support Apple TV and, uh, or, uh, you know, the fact that they are actively okay with supporting the TV app and uh, Siri Universal Search and all of the indexing stuff there, like, that says a lot about their priorities, right? Like, they couldn't give two shits whether you're watching their content on a Fire TV stick or an Apple TV. They just want you to be a Prime subscriber. Keep paying that $99 a year and they'll be very happy. Yeah. Or now, you know, they actually support uh, IAP uh, in-app purchase uh, in via tvOS. So they're actually giving up a third of their Prime subscription revenue for that? I'm going to speculate and say it's less than that because from what I understand, some of the... And th- again, this is like not inside information or anything. This is just me speculating. Um, from what I understand, some of the media providers like Netflix and Hulu and whatever have less than 30% rates with uh, you know for Apple's cut of revenue via the App Store subscriptions um and they recently i think in 2016 they opened that up to other developers too i think that was a whole uh, pr push that phil was doing for that um so that that's uh you know that that's one interesting bit there um but again so so to sum it all up to really bring this home the core tension driving all these sort of questions i'm raising here is between Apple's vertical differentiated hardware model and the sort of more horizontal uh, nature of content services like Netflix and Hulu. Um, and there's a sort of fundamental choice here, right, that, that Apple is going to have to make, right? Is Apple TV premium hardware product? Is that the priority? Are we using video just to differentiate that and, and push that forward? Um, or is is the streaming or is the revenue from having a streaming a cross platform video service what what the point of this whole thing is um and and once you figure that out once they figure that out like figuring out what how to you know merchandise content in the TV app how to bring this stuff to market how to price it whether they have to go license catalog content from studios the way uh you know Netflix and Amazon do to build out the rest of their library you know, all those other decisions are depend like you know have a dependency on sorting this big thing out. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how that has to happen, but frankly, the numbers indicate that the premium hardware direction is not really doing anything for their bottom line, and probably isn't the best use of their limited resources. Right. And the counterpoint to that, of course, is like I said earlier, simply redistributing someone else's content is not a very high margin business. This is true. Um, And the question is, is can you get enough subscribers in that low margin business? Well, Apple Music seems to be growing at a pretty good clip. And so, you know, maybe maybe that's an indication of what what direction they'll take. But then again, they're also really bad at making their services international. So unlike Spotify, where you can subscribe in basically every country on the planet, Apple Music is still in only, what, five, six countries? I think it's rolled out to more than that. Like, in, you know, it's in India and a bunch of other places, too. Well, then I'm wrong. <laughs> I won't pretend to be right all of the time. I mean, I, I think the... 
the the only two streaming vi- uh, video companies that have a play for global stuff right now are really Amazon and Netflix, right? Uh, HBO kinda, Hulu absolutely not, uh, but but Amazon, Netflix definitely, and I think Apple's the only other one who could who has a play there too. That's that's a fair point. All right, yeah, let's do a segment called News of the Week. So, Apple reported earnings this week. Yeah, so uh, apparently they made a shit ton of money uh and uh they're going to make a shit ton more money uh and they made previously they also made a shit ton of money so uh yeah i don't think there's anything more to say about it than that there, there um, there's not yeah every all the rest of everybody else on the internet and everyone else in print media has yelled about it extensively so i think that we can move on to something that happened i guess more than a week ago but strava um I spent a Sunday browsing the world maps for things that looked funny in Strava. Most of them ended up being secret military bases in the Middle East, but there also was weird data that apparently someone has magically walked straight through my block uh, where my building is, which is not possible and would be very strange because we don't actually have a back door. Is that a fire hazard? There's a fire escape, but I am not 100% sure that anyone should use it, except in case of emergency. Also, the building is small enough that one main exit and the fire escape is fine. Got it. Got it. Um, so you're a... Uh, I guess this kind of appeals to you, like your academic background to some degree, right? Because you are a bit of a aficionado of the maps yeah i'm a geography nerd um i'm not ashamed to say it although i never won geography b in school probably because my opponent would go on to run the national geography b so that's you know, neither here nor there <laughs> uh, funny aside i uh i did not make it to the out of school round of the geography b because and the question was what was the original capital of the United States? And for some ungodly reason, I said Pittsburgh. That would be the wrong end of that state. Yeah, the wrong end of that state. And ironic because I would live in Philadelphia for a year. Um, yeah, that does actually seem quite ironic. So it, it appealed to me um, on my map nerd level. I love seeing data on maps. Um, I think that Anyone who says that this is revealing information that other nation-state actors or nation-state level actors didn't know is fooling themselves. Um, everybody who has a business of knowing where secret military bases or um, prisons or weird black sites are already knows about it. Um, it's pretty easy to see the strangely armored house with black SUVs parked in front of it is a secret CIA rendition site. 
So none of that was actually revealed by this. I think the scarier thing is the fact that while they were mapping all of this data, they forgot to anonymize it. And it's pretty easy to go through and find each individual run as opposed to the coalesced tracks, which is right. scary and weird. Yeah, I mean, that, the, that that's a... Sorry to interrupt. Uh, that That's a huge thing, right? Because the... Uh, like, you did, to your earlier point, like, finding out where stuff is just located, like, if you have the resources to investigate a lead or something, not hard to do, right? Not hard to do, and there are things you can just figure out intuitively. Um, it's that... It's that they were storing this data, like you said, completely unanonymized. Uh, and you look at some some of the you know some of the things that are happening with uh, not to make this political, but with like I'm sure you've seen these news stories uh, floating around about uh, license plate scanners and how ICE uh, has been leveraging those to you know find people and you know deport them ag- rather aggressively. Um, that that's just it's borderline malpractice on the part of Strava to just be sitting on all this stuff, uh, you know. And it's, it's not at this point, it's not even whether or not you trust the the first party with the data, uh, right? It's it's government actors, it's malicious actors, it's you know just the exposure that having that sort of specific information sitting somewhere uh, has. Yeah, it's it's scary, but I think it just sort of puts an exclamation point on the end of the fact that there really isn't a good way of having a completely private life anymore. And that is something that as a global society, we probably have to come to terms with. I'm not going to pretend that Strava is the only company that has tons and tons of data, location data, um, purchase history data, everything that this seems to reveal about you can already be assumed by say, buying your entire credit card purchase history, which is a thing that another company can do. They could buy every single transaction you've ever made with every single credit card. And guess what? If you know where somebody shops and how frequently they shop there, you can guess exactly where they live and work because I know that the grocery stores I go to and the restaurants I frequent most are within about a quarter mile of where I'm sitting right now. And the same is true for you, almost certainly. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean... On top of that, right, it's uh it's you can even deduce, you know, what states of life or things are happening to someone, right? I'm sure you've heard the target story about Yeah. Yeah, the the pregnancy story, right? Where uh a uh, a woman uh had recently become pregnant and bought a certain combination of things that uh Target was able to uh use to target <laughs> pardon the pun. Um you know, mailing advertising to her saying like, Hey, are you pregnant? Like, here's some things you should buy. And that basically like, she hadn't disclosed that she was pregnant to her father or something. And like that, you know, let the cat out of the bag. Um, you know, and that's kind of, that's, I mean, that's the sort of thing we, we mean when we say like, don't be creepy. Right. Um, you know, I guess another example of that is, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw this, and this kind of ties it back to that weird personalization thing with Netflix, but I got a push notification um, from Netflix uh, last, last Saturday. I was just out and about saying, you almost watched this. Come back and check this other thing out. I'm just like, okay, this is creepy. I mean, I intellectually know that you're collecting this data about me, right? You're seeing, like, how long am I floating around? 
uh, in the UI. How when am I pausing and stuff? And I know what triggered it. It was that I was I turned on my Apple TV and I watched. You know how Netflix now has a trailer thing that it plays in TVOS at when you uh, yep. ha- have a thing in focus. Uh, so I just watched the trailer and was like, yeah, I'll watch this later. And then they send me a push notification saying, you almost watched this. I'm like, you know, it's, it's not even that they have, they know that it's that, uh, you know, I'd almost rather not know that you, you know, that you explicitly know that, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that frankly, we're all going to have to come to terms with the fact that somebody with enough data can predict what you're going to think or want and know that and use that to react to the world in a way that assumes that everything in the world is out to get us. It's a little bit sad, honestly, because that shouldn't be how we have to interact with the world. But in a lot of ways, that's how you have to protect yourself from the fact that somebody with enough perspective on your life can figure out what you're thinking without actually needing to have mind reading technology who would have thought that the way to actually uh get esp is not to do weird experiments with psychedelic drugs on people in the 60s but just build really 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 big rich databases (laughs) uh not those hippies probably wasn't those hippies no definitely not Uh, but that's a generation before us and not the next generation Okay, sorry. That joke fell flat. <laughs> um, okay, so... So now let's talk about something with a fantastically ugly icon. Are, 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 we, are we talking about... Uh, let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, YouTube TV on Apple TV. Yes, that icon is trash. That's all of my thoughts, but you're the TV person, so I'll let you rant for a couple minutes. Um... What can I say? I mean, I think all these skinny bundles are kind of bullshit. They're all like 35 to $40, and they're stuck in this old sort of like tune in or record sort of paradigm that just feels archaic. It feels like, uh, you know, I think Eddie Q rightfully called DVRs tape recorders uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, YouTube's record feature and even Hulu's record. It's like DVRs in the cloud are still DVRs in the cloud. Like they, you know, I remember when I was at, uh, you know, as a Comcast and they were rolling a cloud DVR feature out. They're actually like one of the first to do it. I think in the U S don't quote me on that. Or as the kids say, don't fact check me. Um, but you're correct, but I'm still going to fact check you. (laughs) Um, that, you look at first off, you're it's it's they it's literally taking an old product and putting it on on you know it's taking a non-internet product making it internetified right, which is already kind of like wait we can hit the reset button reconsider the whole paradigm now that we have on demand and the internet and internet technologies, um, and then like you saw the plumbing behind it and just all the infrastructure and architecture and like just ridiculous complexity associated with like. All right, so we're going to take a, a stream. Like, here's how that feature basically works, right? Like, this is going to get so in the weeds. <laughs> um, if you're a content provider and you're like CNN or something, you are you have a satellite broadcast that goes up and then 
your Comcast, your DirecTVs, your cable companies pull that down, right? And then they'll put that on their whatever plant they have and redistribute that, uh, you know, via that way. Um, what what these companies, all these skinny bundles are doing is taking that feed and putting it in front of like, uh, or putting an HLS transcoder in front of it, right? So it's converting that MPEG-2 feed into like the HLS protocol that your iOS devices use to stream media and then streaming those bits out. When you add this DVR functionality on top of that, it's like, all right, I have to build a schedule, scheduler, recorder, find a place to store all this stuff, put DVR, you know, put DRM on it. Uh, you know, it, it just, it's just, you think about it. It's just like, why, why don't we just have recordings of the shows on a server all the time so people can watch them whenever they want? Like, uh, you know. Because then the people who sell the ads would need to learn new ways to sell the ads. And that's very difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that sucks about it. Once you like, I mean, when I moved out here, we didn't, you know, I didn't, my roommate and I don't have a, uh, have cable, right? We, we just stream everything through apps. And I had, I had been in a world where I had, I had always had cable TV access. And so it's weird when you go back to like that traditional linear TV model and then just the ads are there. And it's like that they're even there is just offensive. <laughs> That's fair. I I would be okay with ad-supported content, even ads that I couldn't skip as long as I could watch the TV shows on demand whenever I wanted to. But having them there and unskippable and also being tied to a legacy system of sequentially broadcast television shows, when I know that that doesn't have to be the case, just feels weird that and like even the ads aren't even like well targeted like they even have like dynamic ad insertion here right like hulu with ads is like they're serving you a different ad uh through the on-demand thing but even those ads are one like they're sold against like they're not super personalized right they're they're sold against these uh uh you know old like cpg style like all right we got to go broad with brand advertising for this product um sort of model and two, it's the same. It's like dynamically serving you the same two ads over and over again. Right. Hulu sh- Hulu knows uh, my age and gender and has 10 years of viewing data. There's no reason they should ever be showing me feminine beauty product ads in a Hulu stream. Or the inverse of that, like a woman should never see an Old Spice ad. I don't know. Isaiah Mustafa is pretty cool. I mean, he is. He is. Okay. Terry Crews. Terry Crews, too. Frankly, if okay, uh, no, everyone mean, gets to see Old Spice ads, I'm happy. I mean, okay. Better example would be Axe Body Spray, right? I think that's... No one needs to see that. Ever. I mean, I don't support anyone seeing ads for Axe Body Spray. Okay. Cool. We're on the same page. Um, so, yeah. So, skinny bundles are bullshit. The products are dumb. Um, I could not even get the YouTube TV app to launch on my... <laughs> Apple TV, or I got to launch, but I couldn't get it to play back anything. Like, I turned it on on the day of the Super Bowl because I was like, YouTube's UI is better than Hulu's, right? Because, like, Hulu's is, like, the information density is, like, one show per swipe, and it takes up the whole screen. It's just, it's just it takes, like, an hour just to scroll through a list. Um, so I, my hope was that YouTube would be better for this. And it turns out, it turns out, uh, I hit the play button 
Nope, nothing. And even like some of the, I mean, I, this is getting super nitpicky on the UI front, but like even they're doing something screwy with uh, how they handle events in, in their app, like just swipe events and stuff. Like it doesn't feel like natural per like the tvOS standard in, in the other apps. Um, so that's another nit to pick. But again, like it failed the quality of service test. Does it play the video? No. It's kind of it's it's literally the example of you had one job. It literally has one job to stream television to you, and it fails at that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I can't think of anything better to to say about it. Uh, it it it's a it's a TV app that doesn't television. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just I just really want to never see that uh, Hulu UI again. Um, yeah. I mean. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, so that 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 news item was, hey, this thing came out. It sucks. But you know what doesn't suck is uh, leaving a project that you weren't interested in working on after a certain point. Uh, and so this next bit also content related. We're a little biased towards content this time. Uh. The showrunner and EP or executive producer from Amazon or not Amazon, sorry, Apple's Amazing Stories reboot. So that's that Steven Spielberg show that ran in the eighties. Uh, those two dudes have left. Uh, so Brian Fuller and uh, Hart Hansen, very alliter- alliterative name. Um, and so now you're gonna have the usual suspects on Twitter going like, "Oh, the content's gonna be bad." And uh, I don't know if it's that, right? Because per this article in The Hollywood Reporter, um, uh, you know, it it says the split is said to be amicable. Uh, Fuller, who originally developed Amazing Stories for NBC, uh, you know, wanted to do a Black Mirror type show. And then it says apparently Apple didn't want to do that. And so what... There's a nuance there, right? Like, is it is he leaving because tonally he wanted to do a Black Mirror show that was really dark and, you know, dystopian and Apple was like, no, we want family-friendly content? Or was it, or was Apple's response to that, uh, or, or did he want to do, like, you know, explore more technology type stuff and Apple was just like, uh, and in, from that same perspective, that dystopian perspective, and Apple was like, Black Mirror already exists. We don't need another Black Mirror, right? Like, those two, we don't know what that answer is, uh, honestly. And I think that makes a big difference in terms of how to view this news. Right. We do know that Apple has a bit of a history of being uncomfortable with adult themes in a lot of ways. Um, From years ago banning, like, a Kama Sutra app from the App Store to having uh, just some very weird hangups around the kind of content that can be sold through their platform. And I think that they're reasonably deciding to uh, project a family-friendly image of their company while um, other content producers like HBO and Showtime are a little bit um, known for being edgier in terms of blood and gore and nudity. But they also have been a lot less afraid to tackle adult themes. Um, And you see that with shows like um, The Night Of, which is a fantastic show that 
is not super gory and not very violent, but deals with some really um, heavy types of information and, and uh, content that I don't think Apple has ever truly been comfortable with, which is interesting. And I, I think that can't be discounted when speculating about what happened here. Given Apple should not just remake Black Mirror because making an exact copy of someone else's show is a recipe for disaster and a bad content, but you also shouldn't decide that you will never, ever address adult themes, particularly when the people who are actually going to be paying for your service are going to be those adults. Agreed. So my counterpoint to that um is looking at a lot of the, uh, you know, if you look at Apple's digital media storefronts, right? The app store, uh, the store tab of the TV app, uh, you know, music. Uh, I think that a good case can be made that they've kind of gotten over that, right? And even things that they're highlighting in keynotes, right? I mean, if like Apple TV launch video and Apple T- a lot of the Apple TV uh, marketing creative has a lot of Game of Thrones and, Stranger Things and a lot of these, I, the the idea that they are averse to adult content, I think, I don't know how true that is anymore, right? Um, because they're so, they're, I mean, I mean, look, like Game of Thrones is a pretty intense TV show, right? It's a show that has like, uh, you know, violence and 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 rape and sex and nudity like it's about as adult as it gets i mean same thing with even uh you know the new season of twin peaks um and and they are featuring the stuff front and center and marketing creative and on their storefronts and even in some of their uh you know uh you know promotions off the store too um so i i don't know i i think you know, it, it, we really have to step back and, and kind of instead of freaking out about what this news could mean, uh, you know, look at all the pieces. Right. And and it's really these dudes left. Brian Fuller in particular is known for like leaving projects and stuff like he left Star Trek recently. Uh, you know, there's a couple other projects that I think there's at least one other one that he uh, he left. Um yeah, American Gods, sorry. American Gods was the other show that he left. Uh, you know, so this guy has a track record of leaving. Fine. Uh, I don't, and again, like, it's that nuance. Well, was it because it's too much like Black Mirror and they don't want to do Black Mirror or was it the family-friendly thing? And I just, based on what I've seen in marketing, the family-friendly theme seems to be more of a non-issue than it was before. That's 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 a fair argument as well. Uh, I think we will just have to wait and see if Apple ends up pushing forward on this content play will all of their content be milk toast or will some of it be edgy and make people feel uncomfortable i mean and there's a, there's a nice there's a line to walk there right i mean like take for example unbreakable kimmy schmidt right that's a show that has a very family friendly vibe to it and like you know a kid could possibly watch it and not get all the humor but an adult can watch it too or it's meant for adults right um, there's a, there's a middle ground to walk there. I'm hoping they find that. Um, and, uh, you know, the broad, broad does not mean family friendly. Broad means like hitting all the notes, right? It's hitting all the port, you know, segments of a population, people who want mature adult content, people who want kids shows, right? I think Netflix has done a great job of addressing that and that's the model they should follow. All right. So enough of you ranting. 
Do you, can you give me something to rant about? <laughs> uh, I could do that. I could totally do that. But I think this will also end up with me. This should be just called the Rajam Rant Fest, I guess, right? We should just change the podcast title while we're at it. Or it's the, still alliterative, so I think that works. Yeah, the Rajam Rant. But then it sounds like I'm a Lewis Black knockoff or something. Um, but uh, the uh, so so next up here, I think, and this is one that. I think hits close to home for both of us for different reasons is this whole sort of uh, dust up over a BMW charging for CarPlay. Um, so the context here is that I think this what came out of one of the auto shows in the last month. Uh, Detroit is one of the biggest auto shows of the year. Uh, it's the start of the auto show calendar it's in the first couple of weeks of the year, and I actually don't even remember if this news came from Detroit or from CES. They're now almost inextricably linked in the car industry because uh, a lot of manufacturers spend the week of CES talking about their digital strategy and the kind of integrations they're going to build and then go straight to Detroit, uh, literally flying from Las Vegas to Detroit on a nonstop flight to share the cars that those digital technologies will be found in. Huh. So I, I didn't realize that they were like, I mean, I, I've noticed the coverage has been kind of just getting closer and closer together. You can't see me right now, but I'm literally just collapsing my hands into each other. Um, that, that is very interesting that it's basically like a two prong sort of uh, hit where it's like the sort of ecosystem chat at the at CES and then like, and here's where it's actually being applied uh, part of, of the Detroit Auto Show. Um, and so what the, the actual sort of story here was that BMW, which currently uh, charges uh, $300 for CarPlay support in the cars that support it as an upsell, was going to move it to a subscription uh, model at like, 80 bucks a month or not month sorry that's ridiculous uh 80 bucks a year first year free through their like bmw connected services portal thing right right um so i think that the the first thing to their first uh point about it is actually very very telling and probably gets at the entire reason for this um we probably uh, people who hear this probably assume that the the actual motive is to get people to subscribe to this connected service, which doesn't just have CarPlay. It has some other features in it as well. Um, and they prob- you may assume that they just want to earn recurring revenue from every car forever. But that probably isn't actually the case because BMW isn't exactly a car company. In the United States, at least, it's a bank that happens to sell used cars. Uh, most BMWs are not purchased, they're leased, and for almost every premium auto ma- premium automaker, this is the same way. They get the majority of their new car sales when they're selling the car to themselves as the bank that will lease the car to a consumer. And the fact that BMW framed the entire charge as costing less over the typical three-year lease probably tells us a lot about why they're doing this. I think that the leasing frame is a really good way to look at this whole BMW charging for CarPlay annually thing. And I think that, for the record, BMW is just the first domino in what will likely be all of the premium automakers 
trying to increase recurring services revenue because they're faced with a glut of used cars that are going to hit the market just as sales of cars have fallen off a cliff and sales of overall premium automotive, just as sales of premium cars have fallen off a cliff and sales of premium autos, including crossovers and SUVs, have effectively stopped growing. And now the only place to get market share is stealing it from a competitor, which is very expensive. Honestly, I I totally understand why they're doing this. It's still a terrible thing to do to your customers, but they want people to keep leasing new cars because then they guarantee their profit margin and then they can sell the used cars for less money but recoup enough of the cost of that car that they will make an overall profit. Honestly, I think that a lot of things are going to go this way where people are going to try to increase subscription revenue. And frankly, eventually, either everything will be bought with a subscription. You don't ever have a purchase price for a car um, or for a phone or for content. It'll all be a recurring subscription. Or people will get fed up and that model will collapse. And honestly, we're really close to that in the automotive world. Volvo has a new crossover that's aimed at millennials called the XC40. It's their small crossover, great for cities uh, and all of the off-roading that you have to do on your commute inside of a major city. But the way that they're offering it is really interesting in that the primary way you're going to buy this car is by paying Volvo a monthly fee that includes maintenance, it includes insurance, it includes the cost of leasing the car, and you just get to have the car exclusively for your use. And every 18 months, I think, if not a little bit shorter than that, you can, or a little bit longer than that, you can decide to get the newest version or keep paying for yours until you've either paid for the full price of the car or decide to give it back to Volvo. I don't think they've quite figured out what the end of that model is yet. Where that gets really interesting is when you get closer to a model that Ford tried and failed failed at doing a few years ago, where you split the cost of leasing the car with a few friends or just across a bunch of people, and then you get this sort of ambient mobility where you pay a subscription fee to get between point A and point B, whether that's having a, a car service pick you up with a driver, having an autonomous vehicle pick you up, or climbing into a car that just happens to be parked on your street and driving off and using it for however long you need it before parking it in another spot in your neighborhood. So so I guess my question there is, and I, you kind of mentioned it in the last bit, um, it's when you're driving it, right? So, you know, it, it feels like the the automotive industry in general is on the cusp of this kind of big transition, right? It's, it's as autonomy becomes autonomous driving systems become more of a, a thing that's actually feasible. Um, and the assumption that, you know, you know, and I think maybe like Horace did you and some other folks have kind of spoken to this, but like once you take out that assumption of person driving the car, uh, you know, it has to be focused in that left passenger seat in the U S driving, um, how does that change the design? How does it change these these business models? And how prepared do you think, you know, folks like BMW and 
and uh, you know, uh, Acura, Lexus, Mercedes, like, are, are prepared for that because it seems like it seems this this is the sort of traditional thing to do, right? Where it's like, all right, growth is slowing down. Uh, this is a mature market. Uh, how do I extract more revenue? Uh, out of my existing customers because I can't grow this customer base much further. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. And I think that it's certainly also a little bit of uh, flailing around trying to figure out what happens when people stop buying cars because they don't need them anymore. Or a car becomes just one of the ways that people get around. Uh, you know, I live in a city that has a pretty comprehensive transit system, but for most people, that isn't the case. Uh, as much as I like to speak ill of the New York City transit system, it's pretty decent. It's better than what most people in the United States have. But better than the Bay Area. <laughs> a lot of places have a better transit than the Bay Area. Low bar, low bar. True. But when the fact that a car is just an appliance for getting places becomes true for all uses of a car what does a car manufacturer do particularly one like bmw where they've entirely built their brand around it's a nice thing to drive what happens when no one drives anymore mm -hmm. and as a car enthusiast it's a little bit sad that we'll get to that point but i'm not going to pretend that there'll never be the opportunity to drive a car again just like people still ride horses for fun but nobody rides a horse as their primary means of commuting in new york city Unless you're like a horse, you know, back cop or whatever. What I don't is there a proper term for that? Mounted policeman or mounted police officer? Person? Yeah, or, yeah. Mounted that. police officer. They take the subway to work just like everyone else. I like horse cop. That's a funny name. That sounds like a very strange animated movie about a horse that joins a small town police force. It, it's the Bojack Horseman spin-off saga. Right. I I just wanted to to not go on a large rant, but um, but but to I think there there are some like just from a product perspective because my my dad recently got one of the new he got the five thirty I got the three thirty e last year. He's also leasing. You can see where I get my ideas from. Um, but he didn't spec or he thought he did, but he apparently did not tell the dealer when they ordered the car, yo, make sure this has CarPlay. Um, and so he has this car, and from what I understand, CarPlay and BMWs is a software entitlement. It's like they all ship with the right hardware to do it, right? It'd be, you basically need uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, Bluetooth to do it um, you know, at a high level. He gets his car and he can't do it. I mean, if they can make that experience more modular and make it something that's decoupled from the dealership experience, like that's great, right? Because then my dad can just be like, try this thing out for a year for free or whatever and just be like, I'm not actually using it. So I, I won't I won't pay for it. And it's just a, a thing you toggle on and off. Um, simultaneously, the other thing that I would like, if they moved to the subscription model as an end user would be great is, are there actually recurring, you know, is there ongoing support and updates for this thing that make it better, right? Is, is, is it clear that this revenue is, is at least in some part driving further CarPlay support development? Because I can tell you as a, someone who uses it in my car, there are certain things 
that it could be better at. Like for example, it doesn't take up the whole the whole screen. It only takes up like two thirds of it. Like that's just annoying. Uh, like Apple added support for that in 2016. Um, it doesn't support uh, for maps turn by turn. It does not support the heads up display. I know there's you know uh, there should be an API for that. There's no support for Siri controlling things in the car. Um, you know in in the car uh, temperature and stuff. So th- there's a lot of stuff they can do to make that experience better. And if they do that, it makes the you know the bitter pill of a subscription fee. Uh, much more easier to swallow. Uh, my sense is that no one has much faith in them doing that. No, no, absolutely not. Um, and and as a counterpoint to your argument, Tesla seems to do just fine by selling you options after the fact as a software entitlement for a single price, and then also continuing to update their cars with software updates uh, even years after they've been produced. I think it's more of an approach to the way that you develop the software for your car than it is an approach to the actual pricing model of your add-ons. Right. I mean, well, and that Tesla is a whole separate beast, right? I mean, they are they are like an integrated, you know, product company in the way that like Apple is, whereas like the car manufacturers still seem like. Uh, I mean, someone's probably made this metaphor before, but it's like, you know, just going and buying a PC or something or like some other sort of like non-smart electronics hardware. That's fair. So Star Wars. So the uh, the big game was on last Sunday and I'd read some speculation earlier in the week that it's kind of weird that. You know, Lucasfilm and Disney hadn't actually broadcast a commercial for the Han Solo film, which is coming out in May. And lo and behold, there was a trailer during the big game. Right. Big game is what I'm legally allowed to say. And I think that's it. There was a trailer. Uh, You should go watch it if you're interested. If you want to remain unspoiled, you should not watch it. But I'm of the opinion that the amount of effort required to keep myself from seeing any media related to a movie is really only worth it for really, really big ones like the main storyline Star Wars films and a few others. I also remained unspoiled for Harry Potter films despite having read the books, which is ironic. Yeah, that's that is that's interesting, the Harry Potter bit. And and to not so well, actually, but well, actually, uh, during the big game, there was a sort of teaser trailer. Uh, and uh, on Monday, they, they threw the actual trailer uh, online, which was interesting as a as a rollout technique. Right. Like that airtime is like, you know, five million dollars or something for 30 seconds or something crazy like that. Uh, and to not even, you know, I wonder if it was a cost like you. there's all sorts of you know, uh, Snoke theories for for the last Jedi. Like I'm sure there are plenty of theories going like, why did they not just run the trailer during the thing? Oh, it's probably because they don't think that movie's good. Like all these sort of, you know, dumb reading into it too much. But anyways, getting that out of the way, what did you think of the trailer, Sam? I actually didn't watch the full trailer. Just watched the teaser. It looks interesting. Kind of looks a little bit like Blade Runner. Um, the, and I, I am kind of here for it. I, don't think it's going to be as good as one of the main saga Star Wars stories, Star Saga Star Wars stories, Star Wars films, but it'll definitely be fun. So, 
So I, I'll go see it. So in adding some context to the concern about it not being as good is that while this film was written by uh, Lawrence Kasdan and his son, John Kasdan, I believe La- Lawrence Kasdan wrote Empire Strikes Back. He might have also, I believe he also did Jedi and then he did, uh, he did The Force Awakens with J.J. Uh, J.J. Abrams. Um, so Lawrence has a good track record with Star Wars films. Uh, but the production of this film has been kind of rocky to say the least. Uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who, uh, did, uh, the Lego movie and I believe 21 Jump Street were originally tapped to direct the film and they had written it or not written it, but they had, they were, you know, going to direct it. Um, and midway through production last year, they were, uh, fired by Lucasfilm and firing someone (laughs) during production is not a normal thing. That's like, uh, you know, it's like pulling your coach out in the middle of uh, the the big game and telling him you need to, you know, find a new job. Um, so to finish up the movie, they brought in uh, Ron Howard, who, who did, uh, what, Apollo 13 and a couple other big movies. Also known from yeah. Arrested Development, I believe. Narrator voice. He was the new director. Well played. <laughs> So they brought him in to, to finish the film. Um, and so the, it's the combination of that and it, the fact that it's been so long since we had, you know, heard, seen anything about this movie so close to its release date, which is May 25th. So like Memorial Day weekend it was like a lot of people were freaking out about it. There were some stories about the lead Alden. Uh, what's his name? Eric? Aaron Reich. Aaron Reich. Thank you. I pronounced that terribly, but that's how it is. Okay. <laughs> Uh, apparently they had hired uh, acting coaches for him, and then there were some people saying like, "Oh, this is this is a normal thing on sets." Like, it, so I don't know, uh, you know, and and that's why everyone was freaking out about it. Um, I and and to be clear or to be fair, uh, Rogue One also went through some pretty similar things, you know, extensive reshoots and script edit changing, and you know, to the point that you saw this teaser trailer and then you saw you saw the movie and there was stuff that didn't make it to the final cut, um, which is okay. That's how movies are made. That is fine. Yes. Um, but what I found what I found a little bit more interesting this week is there was another piece of Star Wars news. Um, because we can go back and forth on the trailer forever, but the Star Wars this this piece of news was um, about the the showrunners from Game of Thrones are being tapped to help make I forget what it was a new trilogy or some more movies for Lucasfilm. It's just films. They just said film series. So that's uh, mm-hmm. DB. What's it? Something Benioff. Mark Benioff and D.B. Weiss. <laughs> David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Mark, da- Mark Benioff is the CEO of Salesforce. That's quite the... Oh, that's right. I am very bad at names. All... Uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. You know, I, the only name I remembered was D.B. and Benioff, so... <laughs> I was I was closer, but still incorrect. <laughs> yeah. This will become a recurring theme of everything you see or hear me do. Oh, man. Don't, don't fact check Sam. You're welcome to. Most of my facts are correct but a few of them are very incorrect. Mark Benioff, not showrunner of Game of Thrones, CEO of Salesforce. Yes. But I, I think it's interesting that the um, I saw some people tweet about how the same people who brought you Confederate, a love story to effectively slavery and racism, not that it's actually going to be that, but 
what some people will see it as. And Game of Thrones, which is not a show known for its diversity, are going to be running Star Wars films. That is interesting. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've seen. So I have a confession here. I have never seen Game of Thrones. Uh, I have kind of, you know, as, as much as I can rant about TV stuff, as you can tell, uh, I, I haven't watched any Game of Thrones. So I, you know, my experience with their work is largely secondhand. Beyond, I think they directed an episode. They wrote and directed an episode of Always Sunny a couple seasons ago. Um. Uh, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, there's, I think, only two characters of color uh, that are named and in the regular recurring cast, and they both start as slaves. That that's uh, yeesh. That that's uh, but again, like that's was that was that a choice they made or was that a George R. R. Martin thing? Because there's an adaptation sort of component to Game of Thrones that isn't yeah. totally them. I don't think uh, the race of a lot of characters is specified. They they sort of just chose to, and George R. R. Martin has said that the the Game of Thrones universe is supposed to be uh, effectively the United Kingdom writ large with a little bit of Spain tacked onto it. So I don't necessarily blame them a hundred percent, but they clear they clearly didn't make diverse casting choices where they were able to. There are some places where they couldn't, but in a lot of ways they could have made this cast a lot more diverse and representative of the way that the United Kingdom is today and not insisted on having their fantasy television series containing dragons have pure demographic um, reflection of the way that the United Kingdom was in like 1350. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Um, Yeah. I mean that, that, that kind of leads you to the, you know, with, with that sort of body of work behind them with the recent Confederate stuff, um, the context of game of Thrones, um, you know, it, it, and you step back and look at all of, uh, you know, the other sort of, uh, choices and who, who leads Star Wars, right. Creatively. Um, you know, we have better representation in the films now, right. You have Daisy, Daisy Ridley, you have, uh, uh, John Boyega, John Boyega, you have Felicity Jones and Rogue One. Uh, you know, Rogue One was great. You know, Riz Ahmed, Felicity Jones, uh, I I uh, Riz MC yo you know it I and in, I I mentioned the tweet about Darth Vader the other day but you know that's the first time like there's like a a person who looks like me kind of on you know the Star Wars movie like running around and doing stuff like not like some background player or something um or being like culturally an influence to the Force or whatever like it's like an actual like you know brown person doing stuff was pretty great um. You know, so so they're getting there, right? They're you know Donnie Wen and, and in Rogue One, like they're they're aware of the problem, and I, certainly Kathleen Kennedy is is you know she's a smart woman and knows what she's doing. Um, but if you if you step back behind the camera to to the directors and uh, you know the writers uh, who are creating these stories. Uh, they all tend to be white men, right? I mean, you have George Lucas himself, obviously. You have Lawrence Kasdan, you have Richard Marquand, uh, who did uh, Return of the Jedi, you know, the best Star Wars movie. Uh, you have uh, Irving Kirshner, J.J. Uh, Abrams, uh, Ryan Johnson. Um, you know, it, it's it's a pretty, you know, uh, hetero... Uh, what? Homogeneous? Homogeneous? Homogeneous, yeah. yeah. Wow. 
homogeneous. Homogeneous. Uh, homogeneous homogeneous though is how um my freshman year of high school chemistry teacher described that used uh used to say that word so it does feel a little bit like home yeah uh i see what you did there um but yeah it's it's pretty it's it's a pretty steady group of people and what i find interesting about this whole thing and and people have been you know calling them out for it rightly so you know when is like someone uh like taika watiti who did a great job with thor ragnarok uh you know when is he going to get a chance to do some one of these things or uh ryan coogler who apparently is just killing it with black panther right now based on all the early reviews um i am the most hype for that movie oh that that's gonna be great like I am, I said that in a monotone, but I'm internally like jumping for joy. I just don't want to bump around my microphone. I I barely see any Marvel movies. Like I've seen, like I didn't see any Marvel movies between, uh, um, the original Avengers and Civil War. Like I skipped everything between those. I didn't even see Guardians. So like, but Black Panther looks really good. Um. You know, there's there's the, there are plenty of people who would be up for doing a Star Wars movie who are not white dudes. Ava DuVernay would love some sci-fi. I mean, she's doing A Wrinkle in Time, which is one of the better pieces of sci-fi ever written. Yeah. So I think she'd be totally down to make this badass Star Wars movie about literally anything. Yeah, or uh, Patty Jenkins, you know, coming off of uh, Wonder Woman. Like, there, I mean, again, like, we're naming directors and movies that have come out in the last, either are about to come out and are highly regarded or have come out recently and are highly regarded. And there are people who are behind these movies who are highly regarded. It's not hard math. Like I, I don't really understand, especially when, right. when you look at how, you, you know, there, there's a team at Lucasfilm called the story group that kind of makes sure that all of these diff, disparate projects that are in production concurrently are working together in lockstep with each other from a story perspective from continuity you know it's how you get things like oh this object in one movie is showing up in another movie but both movies are being made at the same time right or uh, you know the example of uh hyperspace tracking right that's a key plot point in uh in star wars the last jedi uh, you know, is uh, just thrown as an aside as something the Emperor Empire is working on in Rogue One. Um, you know that that team is very diverse. You know the uh, the lead of that team. Um, you know, let me open up this New York Times article that we'll put in the show notes here. Um, is uh, you know, I believe a woman of color, and I mean this article is literally called the uh, the women who run Star Wars. Uh, run the Star Wars universe. So it is not like, uh, you know, you know, Lucasfilm, uh, you know, it, it, one, they aren't aware of the problem because they, 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 I'm sure they are. They're smart people. Uh, and they have people who they're working to solve this problem internally. Just why is this not translated over to, uh, you know, why is this not translated over to the writing and to the uh, directorial or director's chair? Yeah, I think that a lot of it comes from the fact that it's often really difficult to convince the people who are about to invest a billion plus dollars in your movie that they should invest it on a director who's quote unquote 
untried. Given we just named six or seven people who have made multi-million dollar, hyper-successful movies. Uh, Ryan Coogler, even though Black Panther isn't out yet, um, Black Panther has already sold enough in pre-sales to be a hugely profitable movie. But he also made Creed a few years ago, which was incredibly successful. Um, so these are all directors who have worked in the right genre before and done really well with really big budget complex films. But it is often really difficult uh, in the entertainment industry, not just in movies, but all across the industry, for people who are not straight white dudes to be recognized for their accomplishments. And meanwhile, straight white dudes who are mediocre or not super great get rewarded for their mediocrity. Uh, let's be honest, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harp on Game of Thrones a little bit more, but uh, Game of Thrones has not been run especially well the last few seasons. Um, they're, basically, as soon as the show went past its well-written source material uh, and the wealth of material that they had to draw from, it sort of went off the rails and didn't particularly uh, hit the same sort of pacing and thoughtfulness of story design as it had before. And I think that that would concern me a lot more as someone who is about to hand uh, these two, hand uh, Benioff and Weiss a bunch of money to build a Star Wars film than somebody who maybe someone on my board might be like, well, I don't really like Ryan Coogler because I didn't see Fruitvale Station or Creed. You know, I would be more concerned that the money would be wasted than that someone might say that they don't like the director. Right. And, and, but I think the, the counterpoint to that is the, is the progress that Kevin Fahey and, and Marvel have made, right? Within the same corporate umbrella. And, you know, I don't know the nuances between Marvel and, and Lucasfilm within Disney, and I'm sure that they exist. But, um, you know, when they're doing it in house, when, you know, Bob Iger is kind of the guy you know, who's pulling it all together. You know, these, these properties literally coexisted Disney stores and in Disney parks, um, you know, that the source material, that that sort of strategy isn't kind of, isn't consistently, you know, happening across the whole port, whole Disney portfolio is a little concerning. Um, and, and, and to that end, I mean, like, you know, Ryan Johnson, you know, as great as uh, The Last Jedi was, let's consider his resume beforehand, right? He had done Looper. Uh, great movie, which I haven't seen. Um, and he did Brick, also a great movie I haven't seen. Um, and he also did, uh, you know, a couple episodes of Breaking Bad. Those I have seen, though somewhat out of context. I have a weird history with Breaking Bad. Like, this is not, like, Creed outshines all those things. Like, Creed made a play at the Oscars, right? Like, within the industry, you know, it's not even a comparison. Um, and, like, he's, like, he finished Black Panther. Like, does he want to go do Black Panther 2? Or does he want to go make a billion-dollar Star Wars movie, right? I mean, even just from that sort of production perspective, like, Ryan Johnson had never done anything as big as Star Wars when he did it. The closest thing to a Star Wars movie is a Marvel movie. Absolutely. Um, I think it's worth worth noting that in addition to, um, you know, the Marvel movies, which next year, I think, yeah, next year, Captain Marvel's coming out uh, directed by a um, male and fe- uh, man and a woman, so a, a directing pair. Uh, so the screenwriter is also a woman, so they are working on getting a slightly more representative 
set of directors in to the Marvel movies. But we I had mentioned earlier um, A Wrinkle in Time, which is itself also a Disney movie. So maybe it's just a problem with uh, the Star Wars and Lucasfilm org than it is an issue with Disney because Disney is clearly able to put uh, financial resources and marketing resources and promotional resources behind movies that are ideated and created and written by people who are not just straight white dudes. Um, I mean, for heaven's sake, Black Panther has a Kendrick Lamar soundtrack tie-in, and that soundtrack album may be a Grammy-winning album, too, um, and not probably not in the soundtrack category. Like, it may spawn singles that compete for next year's Grammys. It's going to be great either way. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. So I think that's that's like a good a good thing to end on is just Disney is capable of doing this, and I really hope that they do it with Star Wars. Lucasfilm, why you gotta be that way, man? Cool. Uh, I think two and a half hours is good enough. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to plug before we end the show? Um, no, I do not. Uh, my blog is horrendously abandoned. I have posted on it twice in the last two years. Uh, but if you would like to see me occasionally rant about how fancy concepts that are produced in tiny numbers uh, are not representative of the future of cell phones and how weird 80s mashup cars are like the iMac Pro, you can see me at samthegeek.net. Also, if you would like to find me on literally any social media network in history, I am Sam the Geek. Great. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at PavanRajam. Uh, and then obviously the blog is rajamreport.com for all the sort of writing. I should uh, be doing some more stuff there in the future. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe uh, in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or the podcast client of your choice. Uh, if you really liked today's show, uh, it'd be great to hear about it via a review in Apple Podcasts. Uh, those do make a big difference, and uh, we'd love to see some of the love there. Uh, all right, that's it for episode one of Roger Radio. Uh, see you next time.